Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Mm. David and Goliath, it's a book all about uh, what happens when ordinary people confront giants. And by giants, we mean all sorts of powerful opponents. You know, we're talking about armies, mighty warriors, uh, but also disability, misfortune, oppression. These are all the types of battles that were metaphorical and literal that we're going to talk about. So, we're going to be going through different stories of some people famous and unknown, but across all of them in the story of David, they've faced really an outsized challenge and have been forced to respond. I think that's where all the lessons in this book are and how you, how you uh, adopt a strategy, like should you play by the rules or follow your own instincts or should you persevere or give up or should you strike back or forgive? Through these stories, there's a couple of ideas we're going to explore. The first is that a lot of what we consider valuable in our world arises out of these lopsided conflicts because the act of facing and overcoming seemingly overwhelming odds produces these myths of, of greatness and beauty. And secondly, we consistently make the wrong assumptions about these stories and a lot of the time we get them wrong. We misread them, we misinterpret them. Sometimes giants aren't what we think they are, they kind of suck. <laughs> That's right, we need a better guide to facing giants. So, let's go back to uh, 3,000 years ago to the Valley of Elah and that epic confrontation between David and Goliath. In the 11th century BC, we've got the Israelites. They're hanging out in the mountains uh, under the leadership of King Saul. Then you've got the Philistines who have come across the sworn enemy of the Israelites and they want to do battle. They want to try to take over effectively. And uh, they were on two opposing sides of a, of a mountain with a valley in the middle. Philistines parked on one side, Israelites parked on the other. Neither of them wanted to make that first move to go down because you're inevitably then fighting uphill, which is a very weak position. So they were both just holding strong and no one was moving anywhere. Yeah, if they went toe-to-toe with the full army, there'd be a lot of bloodshed. So they came up with a compromise. I think the Philistines might have came up with this idea. And this was like they both send their greatest warrior down, they settle it out, and whoever wins that battle one-on-one, then that army wins and we don't have to have anyone else die. (laughs) It's probably a good compromise, unless you're one of the two people fighting. But for everyone else, you know, rather than go on a full war, just say, okay, we'll we'll place our bets and hope for the best, and if not, we'll go back with our tail between our legs. Well, now, the Philistines like this idea. So, in terms of this soccer metaphor, right, they've got... A Brazilian team with Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo equivalent. And I think Messi's from Brazil. <laughs> yeah, no, but the equivalent. They've oh, got, the they're throwing in people yeah. like that. And they're going up against, I don't know. Um, Mate, Ronaldo, Ronaldo Cristiano no, I'm saying, Ronaldo. I'm saying with, with that. I'm just okay. adding, adding a few to their team. Um, and they're going up against, no offense to... Um, uh, <laughs> Mate, offense we'll Australia. Australia's a pretty weak Australia, team. Australia, we can go Australia. Against Australia. And so, if you know, when they throw up that team, in Australia, you'd be thinking, shit in yourself because our soccer team is That's going right. to battle there and Brazil is going to take over our country. That's right. So, the, the Philistines, they send down the greatest warrior, this massive giant, six foot nine, got a bronze helmet, full body armor, a javelin, a spear, a sword. He's got an attendant just to carry. He's got so much shit. He's, he needs someone else to just carry it down. And the big giant... He faces up the hill to the Israelites and he said, Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he prevails in battle against me and strikes me down, we shall be slaves to you. But if I prevail and strike him down, you will be slaves to us. Yeah, fair talk from the big lad. And then the Israelites, 
I was like, shit, who are we going to th- <laughs> throw down? And the shepherd boy pops his head up and he comes down from Bethlehem to bring food to his brothers. So, he's not even a soldier. He wasn't even the army. He stepped forward and volunteered and everyone's like, oh, no, here we go. <laughs> and um, he said, you cannot go against his Philistine and do battle with him, mate. You're just a, a young lad who is just way out of his depth and you're, just a, and you're in your youth. But the shepherd boy says, you know, I'm not in the army, but he, you know, he says, I look after a, 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 is it a flock of sheep, a herd of sheep? Yeah. A herd of sheep? And whenever a lion or a bear comes to try to take one of the sheep and picks it up, I'll go after that bear or lion, I'll strike them down, and I'll pull the sheep out of their clutches. Which is, a, if you're taking on bears and lions, you're probably not too afraid of a human giant. Yeah, that's it. But Sol, he, he got no other options here. So, he relentlessly just let the shepherd boy go down, <laughs> and everyone thought, oh no, this is going to be interesting. And the big guy with all his armor, who was very tall, he said, come to me that I may give your flesh to the birds, to the heavens, and the beasts of the field. The giant cried out. Um, and again, pretty intimidating there. <laughs> and of course, this is one of history's most famous battles. Obviously, the giant we're talking about is Goliath, and the shepherd boy we're talking about is young David. So when Goliath shouted out to the Israelites, he was asking for what is known as single combat. So common practice in the ancient world, like we were saying, so rather than the two armies go to war, uh, you just sacrifice one person from each army. And so he was obviously expecting another equivalent warrior coming up against himself for a bit of hand-to-hand combat. He never thought the battle would be anything outside of those terms. He was just expecting another, you know, whoever their biggest bloke that they can send down there is, and uh, they were going to fight it out hand-to-hand. So he tried to take all measures to protect himself. He had this elaborate tunic made up of hundreds of overlapping bronze like almost like fish scales. Uh, it covered his arms. It reached down to his knees. It probably weighed more than 100 pounds. He had his bronze shin guards as well, protecting his legs. He had bronze plates over his feet. He wore this massive, heavy metal helmet, and he had three different weapons, all for close combat. He had a thrusting javelin. He had a sword, and he had also this weird sort of uh, long-range, sort of like a, a big thing heavy thing on the end of a stick that he could whirl around and whack someone with yeah so to the israelites it was pretty extraordinary watching this lad walk down because even just his his spear was big enough and with his strong arm could easily pierce another bronze shield and bronze armor altogether. so why the hell would anyone go up (laughs) against someone like that you wouldn't you wouldn't and but saul uh you know king saul i don't know why king saul didn't put himself on the line but uh i suppose you wouldn't if you were the king hey but king saul as david's uh, heading down the mountain, he says, here, I'll give you my armor and take this sword. At least you might have a bit of a chance. <laughs> and David yep. said, no way, Matt. I can't walk in these. I'm not used to this. And instead of taking the sword, he just reached over and picked up a, a little rock or two and put it in his bag and just started walking off with no protection whatsoever. Now, Goliath at this stage looks at this little boy coming up to him and he feels really insulted because he expected to go toe-to-toe with a seasoned warrior. And instead, he sees this just a little shepherd boy, just the lowliest of professions, who seems to want to use, use his little shepherd's shepherd staff against uh, Goliath's giant sword. <laughs> and Goliath, he was, you know, he, he, this was an insult to him. He said, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Obviously, what happened next is a matter of legend. David pulls out one of those little stones from his leather pouch, puts it in his sling and fires it right at Goliath's forehead. It uh, knocks him down, it stuns him. David just quickly runs up, grabs Goliath's own sword, chops off his head, holds it up, and the Philistines just thought, holy fucking shit, who is this guy? And they just all bolted, basically. Yeah, so <laughs> it's miraculously won by an underdog by all expectations, should not one of all. 
and it's the same story comes up all the time these days, doesn't it? And there's mm. different sort of um, ways of telling the story, but the phrase really, David and Goliath's story, now it's embedded in our language and it is a metaphor for improbable victory. But the problem with this version of events is that almost everything about it, the way it's told is wrong. Oof. Man, that's a that's the story that everybody knows. It up is, to this up point. until this point. Up until this point, it seems that's a story. You know, this uh, complete underdog, an absolute no-hoper against one of the, probably the greatest warrior of all time up to that point and somehow won. But obviously, if uh, if we work a bit of Cloudwell magic on this, we might find out that that story isn't quite what we all thought. Firstly, ancient armies had three kinds of warriors. They had cavalry, so big armed men on horseback. There was also infantry. They were the big foot soldiers, and they were wearing their armor, carrying swords and shields. And then thirdly, there was the projectile warriors like archers and slingers. So obviously, the slingers had this leather pouch. It's not like a little slingshot you got as a kid. It's a bit more serious. You wind her up, and you can get it really fast and really accurate. That's that's what we're talking about here. That's it. So slingers, at the end of the day, were, they weren't useless. They were pretty much weapons of what they did. They had an extraordinary amount of skill and practice because with experienced hands, it was a devastating weapon. Um, there's paintings of medieval times, right? Like showing a little bird flying in the air and a slinger catching it <laughs> mid-flight with a rock. Man, now that is one hell of a slinger. And they say that Irish slingers back in the day, they could hit a coin from as far as they could see it. <laughs> that's, a, that's very accurate Deadly from accuracy, a very long man. way away. <laughs> the equivalent, I guess, is like imagine standing in front of a major league baseballer just a, a meter or two in front of you. He aims a baseball at your head and piffs it at full pelt. That's basically what the slingers were doing back in their day. So there was the three types of warriors, right? And there was a historian, Barrel Calpern, and he argues that the sling out of the three, which is cavalry, infantry, and projectile warriors, was of such importance because... All three kinds of warriors balance each other out. It was a lot like playing rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, you've got the if you the infantry with their big, long spears, they can stand up against cavalry. They can just spear the horse. There's the cavalry. They can uh, defeat the projectile warriors because they're able to move quickly and the uh, projectile warriors can't take proper aim. And then you've got your projectile warriors who are deadly against infantry because they're basically sitting ducks. Yeah, that's it. If you think oh, that's all the big movies are when you've got um, those two big... Uh, uh, armies and the general chooses who they go for first. Famously, William Wallace in that movie, they, they shine their ass at the opponent and then which um, <laughs> gets them to get all arrogant and then throw their horses and their cavalry at them. But they're these long spears. So mm. I guess in the game of rock, paper, scissors, allowing them to, to go with something first, they actually won the war that mm. way. Yeah, Pretty clever. Similar. So obviously Goliath, he's heavy infantry and he's expecting to go head to head in another heavy infantry. That's why he says, you know, come to me. So I give your uh, flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. The key part there is he's saying, come to me, as in come right up here so we can go fist to fist, sword to sword. He's, uh, that's why he wants him to come up close. He's not saying stand way back there, you know, so you can sling a thing at me. That wasn't what he was expecting. He's at saying all. come to my terms, mate. Come that's on right. my terms. That's right. But David, however, has no intention. He doesn't <laughs> want to go on his terms. He'd be no chance. Arm to arm He'd be no chance. No chance. So he tells Saul that he's killed bears and lions as a shepherd. Um, it's not just saying, hey, mate, I'm, I'm courageous, but he's actually making a different point that he intends to fight Goliath the same way he has learned and become skilled at fighting wild animals, and that is of a projectile warrior. That's right. He's not going up and tackling the lion and just punching the shit out of the lion or anything. He's got a weapon. He's got his sling, obviously. So he's, he's planning on fighting the battle the same way. So he runs towards Goliath, and because without armor, he's got speed and maneuverability. Like remember we were saying before, uh, Goliath had a huge spear that he could... Um, 
throw and get through someone's armor. But if someone's wearing that armor, they probably can't move fast <laughs> enough to get away. That's but right. if you don't have armor, that spear, you've, you've made it useless as well. That's right. Goliath, he'd protected his whole body with bronze armor, except for that one point, basically, of vulnerability on his forehead. And of course, the wildly accurate David with his sling got him right in that spot. And there was nothing Goliath could do. He had hundreds of pounds of armor that he, he just couldn't move. He was literally a sitting duck and he was immobile. He couldn't do anything. Within a, a you know a fraction of a second, uh, there he goes down. He couldn't do anything. Bang! Right in the forehead. Game over. There goes his head. So in the game of this rock paper scissors, it's pretty clear now, right? Like David's a slinger, and slingers beat infantry hands down every day of the week. Mm. Um, Robert Dow Dorenwend he wrote that Goliath <laughs> had as much chance against David as any Bronze Age warrior with a sword would have against an opponent with a uh, forty-five automatic pistol. That's right. Goliath was a giant. You know, everyone thought he was the, the top dog and he was guaranteed to win. But of course, he'd brought a spear to a sling fight. Ooh, so he's got no chance there. <laughs> he's got no chance. So that's not the only thing. On another level, the drill here reveals the folly of our assumptions about what power is. The reason King Saul is skeptical of David's chances is because David's small and Goliath's large. I think if we look at anyone, anything today, we just assume that someone who's big and more powerful is better than someone who is small. And that's just a maybe mm. a natural assumption we've got. That's right. Saul was thinking purely in physical terms. He didn't realize that there were multiple different forms of power. He just thought big and strong is the only type of power. Uh, he didn't realize that there are actually different games you can play altogether. And there's a second issue here is that Saul and the Israelites think they know who Goliath is. They size him up and jump to conclusions. Maybe a bit of halo effect there, Astro, oh, where you time. just think the size there is extrapolated to all of their qualities. And they, so they think what they know what he's capable of, but in doing so, they really don't see him. That's right. So they just see this massive six foot nine giant. So large, so heavy. You know, long limbs, just everything that would make somebody strong. But they didn't realize that perhaps the thing that made him so strong actually made him so weak. Because what many medical experts now believe is, in fact, that Goliath had a serious medical condition. Um, and so he looks and sounds like someone suffering from what is called acromegaly. And this is a disease caused by benign tumor on the pituitary gland. Sorry, medical profession, I'll push you those words. <laughs> That's right. What the, this tumor does is that it causes an uh, overproduction of human growth hormone, which is what makes people so massive, obviously. There's a, uh, a bunch of famous people with this acromegaly, a whole bunch of wrestlers. It makes sense you, if you're going to be massive, you're going to be a wrestler, like the great Carly, the big show, Andre the Giant, they've all got this. Uh, you might think Tony Robbins has probably got a bit of acromegaly going on his, as well. Richard Kyle, the actor, he played Jaws in James Bond. He was Happy Gilmore's boss. They're all massive people and massive because of this acromegaly. The tallest person in history who was, uh, he was what was he, 8 foot 11 inches. Mm. And he died when he was 20 something. And he was apparently still growing because of this acromegaly. So it obviously makes you a very big lad. But there's also different side effects that come with this. And that is vision problems. Because the tumors get to the point where they press against the nerves that are right next to the eyes. And it results them having severely restricted sight or even sometimes double vision. Mm, and that's why when uh, he says, you know, come to me so that I can uh, give your flesh to the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field, he wants him to come because he's, he really can't find where David is otherwise. If David doesn't come right up to him so he can literally be right in front of his face and he can see him, there's no chance that Goliath is going to be able to go and fight David. He also, when he says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? 
David only had one stick. Maybe that's a bit of double vision going on that he thought David was coming with multiple sticks. Jeez, his story's got layers, man. <laughs> so what the Israelites saw from high on their ridge was this intimidating giant. But in reality, the thing that gave him his greatest strength in this giant size was probably the source mm. of his greatest weakness, and that was his vision. That's an important lesson for any battles that we've got with all kinds of giants. You know, if they seem powerful and strong on the surface, maybe beneath the surface there's a few weaknesses that we can't see just yet. All of these years we've been telling these kinds of stories wrong. So Dave and Goliath, this book is about getting them right. Let's have a look at uh, a few more recent wars now. If you tally up all the wars over the past couple of hundred years that occurred between very large armies against a very small army, you know, what would you think? You know, who who would win? Obviously. We're talking, you, you're talking a factor of 10 or something, or a yeah, factor like of 5. Difference. 10 times bigger. 10 times bigger. So, the, you know, the US versus Canada, you know, the, the US has got 10 times more people. Well, you put, think 100%, yeah, but you put I'll your be, money on them. <laughs> that's, a tenfold difference is massive. Well, I actually found that the actual number was only 71.5%. So, we're talking if the army is 10 times larger, they still lose almost a third of the time, which is bizarre, yeah? That's insane, man. That's insane. And then the guy who did the research, Aragon Toft, um, asked the question again slightly differently. He said, what happens in wars between the strong and the weak when the weak size does exactly what David did and refuses to fight the way the bigger side wants to fight? So, using unconventional or guerrilla tactics. Mm. In that case, the winning percentage goes up from 28% to 63%. So, we're talking almost a two-thirds shot. You're more than a coin flip of winning even though you're one-tenth of the size, if you do this sort of, you know, unconventional guerrilla tactics. Wow, man. Well, just, Wild. again, shoot, shooting from the... Well, the US won the Second World War when it was basically a, a battle on, on Goliath's terms, so mm. Goliath versus Goliath-type battles. But since then, they've gone up against a whole bunch of Davids, man. I don't think they've won any war, have they? <laughs> Vietnam, bunch of Davids. Bunch That's of, right. Yeah. Well, I suppose if you if we go back to David and Goliath, so if you got six foot nine, three hundred pound Goliath, and he fights at six foot four, two hundred and fifty pound from the other side, Goliath's probably going to win. But when he's coming up against David, who's fighting in a, with completely different tactics, that's what we're talking. So if two armies go head to head and one's ten times bigger, yeah, they're probably going to win. But if that small one has got a few sneaky uh, rocks in their shoulder bag to sling at the army, then mm-hmm. they're, they're they're a bloody good chance. And we're always surprised and shocked, man, when David does beat Goliath, even though the statistics are all there. One of the winning underdogs on the list was a, a lad called T.E. Lawrence, and he's better known for Lawrence of Arabia. I've heard of that guy before. Yeah. <laughs> and he led the Arab revolt against the Turkish army occupying Arabia near the end of the First World War. The British, they were helping uh, the Arabs in their uprising. The goal was to destroy this long railroad that the Turks had built running from uh, Damascus deep into the Hejaz Desert. Uh, and it's a pretty daunting task, obviously. The, the Turks had a formidable army. And Lawrence, by contrast, he had a, an unruly band of Bedouin. You know, they were not skilled troops, they were nomads. And as one famous British commander said, they were basically just untrained rabble, most of whom had never fired a rifle. So they're, they're, they're Davids. They're a bunch of Davids. They look useless, <laughs> um, but they were tough and they were mobile. <laughs> I like how it's like... It's a real negative. You're a fucking. You're a bunch of Davids. Bunch of Davids. <laughs> it's such a put down, isn't yeah, it? It's like a. Um, it's like a what a backhanded. It's a front handed art. It's like a, it sounds like an insult. But it's actually quite the opposite. Yeah, after yeah. When you unpack the book. <laughs> well, these these bunch of Davids, these Bedouin, all they had was they had a rifle, a hundred rounds of ammunition, they had forty pounds uh, of flour that they all carried around. So they're pretty mobile because that's all they had. They could walk as much as 110 miles a day 
across the desert. Even in summer. In summer. That's a that's long, insane. That's a long way to walk every day. It's like what we were talking before. David Goggins did 110 miles in six hours. So a whole yeah. bunch of an army of David Goggins. Is, yeah, an army of David. Yeah, a very different type of David in that sense. And even worse, man, they carried uh, no more than a pint of drinking water. So it's only in the desert walking that's 110 not- miles a day. So nothing. They hardly drunk, <laughs> bring any water. Because they were so good at finding water in the desert. Mm. So, their cards were speed and time and not hitting power. And Lawrence of Arabia, he knew this. His largest assets were movement, endurance, individual intelligence, knowledge of country, and courage. That's right. So, they're not going head-to-head with an army 10 times smaller. They're going to use some of their unconventional tactics here. And really, the big masterstroke came from when uh, Lawrence, uh, they made an assault on the town of Aquabar, the Turks... They've been expecting an attack from big British ships that they've been kind of patrolling around the Gulf. They're expecting the British ships to come in and land from the west, uh, and so they were kind of ready to go. Instead, Lawrence decided to attack from the east. But what that meant in order to get there was he had to go on this massive 600-mile loop around through the desert, through some of the most inhospitable land in the Middle East, and come from the opposite side to use that element of surprise on the Turks. Yeah, through summer, so there was horned vipers... Puff adders, cobras, black snakes. Um, and this is what Lawrence wrote about in his Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Sounds like an interesting book. But they did it anyway. And in doing so, they, I guess in doing it, they found that little chink, that little slot of uh, the gap that was in the armor of, uh, of Goliath. That's right. They found that forehead. And the numbers here are bloody incredible. So the uh, Lawrence's band of, what do they call them? Un, unruly rabble or whatever. Untrained rabble. And uh, they came in. They had just a couple of hundred warriors. They killed or captured 1,200 Turks, and they only lost two from their side. Jesus. So, two, two poor uh, Lawrence of Arabia's blokes carked it, but in doing so, they killed or captured 1,200 of the others. That's bizarre, right? That's very <laughs> strange. But obviously, having a lot of soldiers and weapons and resources like the Turks did, it can be an advantage, but when it makes you immobile, it puts you on the mm. defensive and on the other hand, uh, movement, endurance, individual intelligence, knowledge of country and courage, these are what his Lawrence's men had in abundance. And it really allowed them to namely attack Aquabar from the east. And it's a strategy so audacious that the Turks had no idea what was coming. It would be pretty insane, right? Being the Turks, not saying that, you look out in the <laughs> desert, it's probably nighttime, I'm guessing, right? You've got no watch, so, night yeah. watchmen um, waiting for them. They would have thought there's no way... Okay, it makes sense. We're going to get attacked from the sea and the big ships will come in. But there's no way anyone's going through the puff adders and black snakes and everything through the desert with no water to sneak up from behind. So we should be right. But of course, that's not how it worked out. For some reason, you know, it's a, it's a pretty difficult lesson for us to learn. We've got a pretty rigid and limited definition of what advantage is and what strength is. So it's kind of hard to understand that these, uh, you know, a couple of hundred untrained rabble can actually defeat a massive army. Yeah, and the reason the underdog wins as often as they do is actually due to their lack of abundant material resources that the big dogs have. Mm. We'll go full Gladwell here. We've been talking about war and battles this whole time. Let's talk about a different battle, nowhere near as deadly, the Battle of Basketball. In one game in January 1971, the Fordham University Rams, they played a basketball game against the University of Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts, they were coming in. They hadn't lost a game at their home ground, known as the Cage. They hadn't lost a game there for three years. Their record that season was 11-1. and one, And basically, the Redmen uh, here, the U- University of Massachusetts Redmen, they were the Goliaths because they had Dr. J. They had Julius Irving, who 
went on to become one of the greatest athletes ever to play basketball. Yeah, they were very, very good. And, of course, they were coming up against a team that was really scrappy, and that was Fordham. They sucked. A bunch of scrappy kids from Bronx and Brooklyn. Their center had torn up his knee in the first week of practice, and he was out. So that meant that their tallest player was six foot five, pretty tall in, in our standards yeah. here in Aussie, but um, very tiny when it comes to playing pretty high-level college basketball. That's right. And the starting forward was only six foot two. So, Asha, even you were towering over him. That's right. Dr. J would have had a good six or seven inches on him. And uh, basically, these guys, as you called them, mate, they're a bunch of Davids. A bunch of, <laughs> bunch of David. But when the buzzer went off, you know, so the, the Massachusetts are expecting to just dominate. They're going to wipe the floor with these bunch of Davids. But actually, the, the Rams actually got out to a 13-6 to lead and really was just like a bit of a war for the rest of the game. These tough inner-city kids, even though they were short, even though they probably weren't as skilled as obviously Dr. J was extremely skilled, they just kept at it. They just kept going and going and going and they just kept, uh, they never gave up. And eventually... The underdogs, the Davids, they won 87 to 79. And of course, they won because they weren't fighting like like life wanted to on his terms. They fought in a very different way. And in the game of basketball, there are countless stories of what happened here. And these legendary games where David, the little lad, uses the full court press to beat Goliath. Mm. Normally, I guess it's an unwritten rule of basketball that normally if you know if someone scores, you just... You pass it in and just the, the little bloke just walks it up to the other half and that's when the game starts. When you get to the other half, that's when you start defending. And that's generally how almost every game is played. But the opposite approach is to go the full court press, you know, really getting up in their face, not letting them just have that easy walk up, really just defending the whole court and uh, making them work for it. Sometimes you can cut off that inbound pass or you get a quick turnover and you can, you know, one score can quickly become two or three and that's how they got out to such a quick lead. Yeah, that's it. Well, you're blocking the, their first pass in, so there's a better chance of, of actually stealing the ball then. And you're not actually uh, allowing the games and the skills of normal mm. conventional basketball be there. And if you think about height and size, that advantage, that really doesn't come into play when you're playing a full-court press, when it's all about speed and mobility. That comes to play when you're really deep into paint, playing posts or something like that. That's right. So really the puzzle of the full court press is like, why did it never become popular? How come most people don't do it? And even uh, the coach who had won this game, Digger Phelps, he even like in all of his games after this game where he won, he beat the Goliath, he never used the full court press again. It's like, well, it clearly worked. Why didn't you do it again? Yeah, well, for some reason he didn't. Many people in the world of basketball don't really believe in the press because it's not perfect. Like it can be beaten by a well-coached team who've got some a few good ball handlers and good passes, and generally all a good team has to do against a scrappy team is just press back because they're probably not going to handle their own medicine. Yeah, well, it makes sense. But the thing is, you know, if, if Fordham, these scrappy little kids, if they had played on the conventional terms, Dr. J's team, they would have won by thirty points. They would have wiped the floor with them. So it's like, well, if you've got a winning strategy, you know, if you're the the uh, army who's undermanned and undersized and you use your guerrilla tactics and you're a good chance to win, how come they don't do it more often? Well, it's not just it's in basketball there, Ash. It was the same pattern when it came to Aragon Toff when he was studying wars because whenever an underdog fought like David, they win, like we were saying. But most of the time, underdogs don't fight like David. Of the 202 lopsided conflicts in his database, the underdog chose to go toe-to-toe with Goliath the conventional way 152 times and lost 119 times. Dumb strategy there, mate. And it's even that uh, when you know armies do use unconventional tactics, you know they do it for a bit, they get the upper hand, and then eventually they kind of just switch back to, to, to the Goliath tactics and they start losing again. 
Well, kind of get it when you think about it, Asho, because when you come up with that story, right, to go through the desert and uh, there's going to be snakes and there's going to be cobras and everything like that, there'll be a few people in the room be like, ah. <laughs> you know, on the surface, I'd rather just go toe-to-toe here. Yeah, that's right. Or even the full court press, man, if, if you're playing low-level b-ball and mm. you've had a few drinks the night before and you you don't want to be doing a full court press, man, because there's a lot of energy that you burn up That's in right. doing it. It's bloody hard. You'd rather just get back to the other side. Let them walk it up easily and say, okay, we'll have a crack. Even though they're much better than us, we'll still try and defend from down here rather than going what we, the way that we know can work. Yeah, it's easier to dress the soldiers in bright uniforms and just have them march up and, <laughs> and it's just so much harder. So, really, <laughs> that is the reason. Underdog strategies are hard. So, so far in this episode, we've looked at the ways in which, you know, we're often misled about the nature of advantages, as in we, uh, what we think is strength and power is sometimes uh, misleading. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these perceived disadvantages and see where, where sometimes something that we think is a big setback may not be uh, such a setback. First, we're going to look at um, problems with dyslexia. So, if you do a brain scan on a person with dyslexia, the images that produce in their brain are pretty strange. So, certain parts of the brain, those deal with reading and processing words. Dyslexics have less gray matter there. So, um, their brain doesn't light up in those areas in, in the way they should. That's right. He says that when, normally when a, a neuroscientist straps on that headgear to try to analyze the brain waves, uh, depending on various tasks, when they put a dyslexic to read and they're doing the brain scan, he says it's like a blackout in the desert. Mm. So, this right hemisphere... Hang on, the blackout in the desert. Wait. The desert's always blackout. It's a blackout in the city and it blackout looks like the, in the desert. City and it looks like the desert. <laughs> Good one there, Asho. <laughs> Crawled it back. So, that, what they do is so they use a lot of their right hemisphere of their brains um, during reading than normal readers do, uh, the right side being the conceptual side. So, it's really not the right. Not the right. It's the wrong <laughs> the half of the brain. It for is the right, and, but that's not right. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's not the right part of the brain for rigorous tasks like reading. That's right. What many people think and what I thought until reading this book is normally the dyslexic, they switch letters around in their brain. So, you know, like cat becomes tack or something or you you put the letters in the wrong order. That's what I thought it was, a, a mismatch. But what they're saying is it's actually um, more of a sound thing than a visual thing. They say like the difference between ba and da, like the B sound and the D sound, um, like bed and dog, I guess, uh, it's a very subtle difference in that first 40 milliseconds of the syllable and there's some kind of mismatch or like a, almost like a, a slow connection in the brain of dyslexic people that doesn't pick that up. Yeah, so that 40 milliseconds is, is, is really crucial. So, if you've got no concept of the sounds of language... Is 40 mil, millis... Is that 0.04 of a second? 40 mil. 0.04? Nah, it, yeah, point, it is 0.04, yeah, yeah. Such, such a short amount of time that makes such a big difference, eh? Yeah, that's it, man. It's really hard. So, it's really hard without that little bit, right, to get that sound to actually map it onto the sounds of, of other words and, and actually be able to read from there. Yeah, it kind of starts obviously when you're, you know, four or five and just trying to learn to read and you're a bit slower. So, you obviously need to read a bit slower in order to pick it up. It obviously means your comprehension's a bit slower and it, this really just, it's like a bit of a... Um, like a, a snowball effect, obviously, when you're five and six and seven and then you you seem all of a sudden you're a bit behind and then you're even more behind and then actually because you're struggling in English now, you're struggling in maths as well and it's it's kind of like really, really building up that uh, it's a big problem, obviously, that you're, you're going to end up behind the rest of the pack. So, you know, if you were having a child, would you wish dyslexia on your child? You probably wouldn't, would you? 
Not at this stage. Not at this show. stage. Not at That's this right. stage. It doesn't end there. People are just getting pissed off at us because we're being mean, it seems like. Because there is this concept of desirable difficulties and this was really brought up by uh, Robert Bjork and Elizabeth Bjork who are two psychologists at the University of California. And really, it's a beautiful and haunting way of understanding how underdogs can actually come to excel. There's um, one big example is the, the CRT, the Cognitive Reflection Test. It's a, it's a three-question uh, intelligence test. It's, uh, it's pretty powerful, pretty telling. Um, you don't have to go through a, you know, an hour of uh, Mensa testing like I did. You can just do these three questions and get a good gauge for yourself. That uh, One of the common questions uh, is a bat and ball cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? So, your gut response is is 10 cents, the quick answer. Mm-hmm. We've heard this story about seven times in the book, so I'm pretty good at this one now. But, <laughs> You're a genius at the, this but test. <laughs> but, if you, but if you do this, uh, the bat is $1 more than the ball and you're saying 10 cents, the total is $1.20. So, you're mm-hmm. getting it wrong. It takes you a while to actually get the right answer, let a few brain loops to get there for most of us. The real answer is five cents and the bat is a dollar oh five mm-hmm. and that gives you the dollar ten total. Yeah, that's right. So what they then found, so with this test, they tested a whole bunch of people, they found what's you know the average strike rate, I guess, of getting this right. Then they tried to work out how can we increase people's scores on this test? And what they did in order to increase the success rate was they made it much, much more difficult. So what they did was rather than just a nice, big, uh, clear black and white text, they put it in a very light gray font. They made it really, really small. So it was like a really small font. So when you're reading it, you have to read really hard. You need to focus, you need to squint, you need to pay a hell of a lot of attention. And they actually found that by doing this, they improved people's scores by 20%. By making them work harder, by go slower, they actually scored 20% better. That's insane, isn't it? Um, because you're, I guess you're going to see the, the trick in the question to write the first time when you have mm. to really slow down your thinking. It's pretty counterintuitive because a lot of the time we think we're better at solving problems when you're presented clearly and simply, but here the opposite really happened. So what the researchers in this um, test did, they made it more difficult, but it turned out that difficulty was desirable. So now the question is, you know, can dyslexia be a desirable difficulty? Is it just a difficulty or is it a desirable difficulty? Well, if you look at some of the famous names, you know, Richard Branson, pretty massive, Charles Swab, pretty massive, all these sort of um, powerful, you know, CEOs and founders like the uh, founder of JetBlue, the CEO of Cisco, the founder of Kinko's, the founder of Ikea, all these people uh, had dyslexia. Well, even anecdotally, man, everyone I know who has dyslexia are super successful and very mm. smart people. To the point where I don't get what dyslexia is. Like I know that it's difficult or you can't read, but it just doesn't, in my mind, link Mm. up because how are you so bloody successful (laughs) and so smart with that? And I guess after this book, it really has come together here. Yeah. Well, there's two sort of possible interpretations for this fact. One is that this remarkable group of ultra successful people, it was that they were, you know, so smart or so creative that nothing was ever going to stop them. Even, you know, a lifetime of difficulty and, and struggle with dyslexia was never going to stop them. But the second, you know, perhaps a more sort of hopeful interpretation is that maybe they succeeded partly because of this disorder. Like maybe that because of all the struggle and this perceived disadvantage, maybe it was actually an advantage in the long run. So I guess now the question is, you know, if, would you wish dyslexia on your child? Maybe if it's this second interpretation... Maybe you would, potentially. Potentially with a desirable difficulty there, Ash Joe. So, if you think about the different ways uh, disadvantage can become an advantage and the different ways of learning, one way of learning 
is capitalization learning. And this is where uh, we naturally go towards the areas that we excel. Of course, famously, Tiger Woods, he just jumped out on the golf course, started swinging and then just smacking, smacking the balls like it was nothing. Obviously, super talented at it. And then everyone just, his dad just started whipping him and then he said, <laughs> made, made him a superstar golfer that we know today. That's right. Or even if you know, you, I don't understand how, uh, at what rate kids develop, but you know, three or four year old who all of a sudden can add up single digit numbers or something and just, you say, oh, you're really good at math. So you get, you know, you focus more on learning maths and you get to be really, really good. I guess that's, that's capitalization learning. If you show a little bit of spark at the start, then you really capitalize on those strengths. Compensatory, compens, compensatory. <laughs> oh yeah, I was going to say compensatory, but I think you're right. I think it's com, comp, I like compensatory. Com, what did you comp, say? Uh, compensatory. <laughs> I, no, I think that's wrong. Okay. What you said Compens, was right. Compensatory, compensatory learning. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, is the opposite logic, and this is where desirable difficulties uh, come in. If you think about our CRT experiments, where you had the what was it, a, a blackout in the desert. Um, <laughs> So think about the experiments before when they made it grey and very hard to read. They actually made their students much their lives much harder, but by forcing them to compensate for something that they had and then taking it away, mm. making them focus harder made them actually better at what they did. So there's a, a story here of a top Supreme Court lawyer. His name was David Boyce, and uh, in the legal profession, basically your job he's number is, one in yeah, Well, he's, he's right up there. Basically, the job of a of a lawyer is to read thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of preceding cases to understand the law, the nuances, and that's going to be pretty hard if you've got dyslexia. So, David Boys, who has dyslexia, he developed a pretty wild skill where he couldn't read, but he had to do other things well, and that was listening and learn an incredible memory for himself. So, when he heard things, like me and you, Astro, we just hear things, or me especially, a name, and he just forgets straight away, but he doesn't really have that luxury of being able to forget things. So he actually remembers it on the spot and registers mm. everything so he doesn't have to go back and read it again. Yeah, when he was uh, a kid and his mother was reading books to him when he was you know, going to bed at night, obviously he didn't know he had dyslexia when he's three or four years old, but he, he couldn't read the words. You know, His mother was pointing to the words and following along underneath and he didn't really understand it. But what he was doing was he was listening and memorizing every word she said. So the next night when the mum said, okay, you read it back to me, she was like, he's following along, he's reading these words perfectly. She thought he was reading, but he was actually just repeating what he'd memorized from the night before, which is yeah. pretty wild, pretty impressive. Yeah, 100%, man. So compensatory learning. Do you reckon I'll compensate for my shit ability to pronounce? <laughs> Will you slow it down? And I think by learning, I think I think we got to the right pronunciation Maybe eventually. I think I'm just lazy with the pronunciation <laughs> of words and it definitely pisses off some listeners who you're writing sometimes. But boys, he, he was compensating, of course. He had no choice. He was a terrible reader, so he had to scramble and adapt with some different strategies, which really made him unique and ended up being his biggest assets in his profession of law. Mm, it's pretty wild. So, you know, most learning we do is that capitalization learning. It's easy. It's obvious. You, you've got a nice singing voice, so you end up going and joining the choir. You can swing a golf club, so you end up becoming number one golf player in the world, and you're capitalizing on those skills. Whereas this compens... I think I was about to say it wrong. Com compens... I can't even say it now. Compensatory. Com <laughs> compensatory learning. It's bloody hard. You know, trying to memorize 
what your mother's saying from the night before and you know listening so quickly and making it stick that you can read it back the next night that's bloody hard yeah i think the people who designed that word had that in mind right so <laughs> it, it requires you to overcome your insecurity and humiliation at the time so you sort of if you suck at something and you get to show your mates at school the next day or whatever you're probably going to scramble the night before mm. and just go hard at a different strategy you probably go through the desert mm. where there's a few cobras and snakes actually to get to the point where you know what you're doing that's it and it's going to be it is bloody hard to go through that snake filled desert metaphorically and you know a lot of people with serious disabilities it's going to be very extremely hard to master those steps but if you can go through the desert if you can turn a perceived disadvantage into an advantage a lot of those people end up becoming a lot better off because of it or so, i guess in spite of it no well, that's it so dyslexia it's no doubt a difficulty but in some cases it's actually not a setback and it's actually desirable i recommend everyone google famous people with dyslexia it's not limited to the people we just suggested before shitloads of people have it Really smart people do. Probably the most amazing to me is Agatha Christie, one of the most prolific authors ever, had dyslexia. I've never heard would've... of Agatha Christie. <laughs> She's not really in our realm, but she would have done, like, written hundreds of books, which is something you wouldn't associate with someone with dyslexia. So now, Astro, would you want dyslexia for your child? Quite literally, mm. we you got a kid on the way. Mm. Good question. That was really awkward. I don't know. Would you? <laughs> I don't think. It, I think my honest answer. Neutral. My neutral, on, right? yeah. My honest answer is I wouldn't wish it on it. But if then they had dyslexia, it wouldn't it's obviously not the end of the world, you know? Yeah, uh, and it could be a benefit. To, so quite a neutral thing. Yeah, exactly. I suppose we can go a bit uh, meta on the whole David and Goliath. It's probably like the um, we both watched uh, Super Pumped, like the Uber versus the taxis. Taxis were Goliath. They dominated. You know, they had, you know, cars on every street corner effectively. They had their uh, web of in, inside, you know, government and politics where they were able to lobby them and get them to be on their side. Really, the taxis were the big Goliath. So, mm. Uber had to come in David style and do things completely differently using these guerrilla tactics. If they were just trying to fight them taxi style, they couldn't. So, they had to go David style. Well, it's exactly maps over to the innovator's dilemma, this whole book, right? It's like the things that make the biggest companies successful actually... Doing the things that make them successful is their weakness in it, mm. what he speaks mm. about. And the little companies, they look at the things that are exciting opportunities, but the bigger companies, they just turn their nose off those little opportunities and David ends up taking on Goliath every time and eventually Goliaths get, they just what, they just... They just get smacked up. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So sometimes not all perceived advantages as, are as positive as you may think. Not all disadvantages are the end of no return. You know, it's not always what we think. Sometimes David, and in fact, often David can beat Goliath. Sometimes the big strong giant has got a bit of a health problem. Sometimes that skinny, weedy little shepherd boy, they've got this powerful weapon in their back pocket. Mm-hmm.